Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. If you're not familiar with how the Bible works, I know we have some visitors with us. Um, we're going to be near the end of the Bible in the New Testament. That big number there, that's the chapter number. You're looking for number four. And then the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And again, we'll be in one through eight. <clears throat> this sermon is going to be dealing with the topic of sexual immorality. And so I want to make a couple points before we get started. Parents... I've belonged to churches in the past where if there was going to be a sermon preached on the subject of sex, all of you would have been encouraged to send your children elsewhere. Now, if you're a visitor here, you may think it's a little unusual that we don't do that. Well, the reason for this is while we would certainly want to protect our children, shield them from any exposure to the way the world talks about sex, we think differently about God's word. God's word comes with God's wisdom and God's power. It's good for our souls, even when we're too young to fully understand everything it entails. And maybe more importantly, even here in Decatur, Alabama, we know that the world is forcing our children to think through these issues at younger and younger ages. So it's my prayer and it's my hope that this sermon might give you the opportunity or at least a helpful place to begin having those discussions with your children if you haven't. Children, children, I'm talking to you. This is a sermon about some pretty grown-up things. But someday, you are going to have to make decisions about how you use your body. You'll have to decide between pleasing God or pleasing the world. Praise God that he has given you good parents who can help you think through these decisions. Listen to them. I also want you to listen to what God's word says to you this morning. Finally, sexual sin, sexuality, our identity, our desires, all of that is very complex in nature. It feels like it's getting more complex by the day. As Christians, we need to be equipped to think well about these issues. I can tell you right now, the text that we're going to be looking at this morning really just scratches the surface on this topic. So I want you to, to hear me. This is your formal invitation to join us at our upcoming Sunday school where we will be walking through the Nashville Statement. The Nashville Statement unpacks all of what the Bible has to say about these topics. Uh, that's going to be starting next Sunday at 9.15 in our Sunday school classroom down the hall. I hope to see you all there. Now let's turn to the text. Follow along as I read. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, 
Let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives us, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the infallible, inerrant, and fully sufficient word of God, and it is perfect. Let's pray. Father, I am weak, and so I ask, Lord, that you would be with me as I preach your word this morning. We all pray that you would use your word powerfully in our lives, that you would shape our hearts by it, and we pray that we would do all that we do here this morning to the glory of your name, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you know that you can please God? This morning's text says that you can. In verse 1, we see that as Paul begins his discussion with these Thessalonians, that they're living in a way that's pleasing to God. Look there in verse 1. You ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing. Maybe you didn't know that you could please God. But if you stop and think about it, this is a pretty remarkable truth. It seems like between us and God that the relationship of of one of us pleasing the other should really only go one way. On the one hand, we have God who is perfect in his majesty and his glory. On the other hand, we have us, frail, sinful, ignorant. How is it that we could please him? It would make sense for a good king to please a peasant. But to think of a peasant pleasing that good king, through the way he lives. There's no higher goal in your life, if you're a Christian, than to please God. So when we hear that, right at the start of our text this morning, that we can please him, our ears should perk up. We should pay careful attention to what the text has to say. So what does it say? How can we please God? Well, look back at verse 2. First of all, this is something, sorry, verse 3. Here we see that we can please God by the way we live. And you'll see that what Paul has in mind here, all of these verses from from 3 to 5, have sexual immorality in mind. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then Paul goes on to elaborate on what that means. This is also something that the Thessalonians have been instructed in before. We see that when Paul says, For you know, verse 2, what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in his pastoral wisdom, knows that the Thessalonians need to hear this message again. In ancient Rome, there were all sorts of vile sins all throughout the culture that these Christians lived in that were completely common and acceptable. The Roman sexual mores were were essentially this, if you had to boil it down to one simple statement, that is, women were to be modest and guarded, and men could treat virtually anyone that they wanted to, slaves, children, weaker men, as objects for their sexual gratification. Prostitution, pedophilia, the exploitation of slaves, this was all widespread in this culture, and it was part of public life. 
It wasn't hidden in some dark back alley. So when Paul instructs the Thessalonians in how to please God through abstaining from sexual immorality, he's doing this knowing how easily they could fall back into that trap and shipwreck their faith. And this is exactly how sin works in our lives, isn't it? God will give us some measure of success over our sins and we become confident. We become maybe a little less alert to the warning signs of temptation. We let our guard down. This is why it's, it's so important to have one another in our battle against these sins. Pornography is a good example of this. If you struggle with the temptation to look at things you know you shouldn't look at, you need a brother or sister. You need a Paul to encourage you not just when things are bad, but when things are going well. But what specifically does Paul have in mind here when he says to abstain from sexual immorality? We we tend to think in lists. We want to know what are the items that I need to abstain from. Well, to the Gentiles, the the non-Christians living in the world of Thessalonica, where this church is, that would have been a really short list. All sorts of the sexual sins that we just described, again, were considered acceptable to them. We face a very similar problem in our world today where the sexual ethics of the people that live around us look a lot more like those of Rome than they do of Christ. How often have you heard somebody say in trying to defend some pet sexual sin that the Bible doesn't really mention that sin? Yeah, it talks about sexual immorality, but the one they want to keep doing doesn't really mention it in the words of scripture well in God's wisdom scripture cuts through any confusion we might have on what sexual immorality is and isn't the word translated sexual immorality here the the Greek word is porneia that might sound familiar this is where we get our word for the word pornography porneia is an all-encompassing word it captures every sort of sexual activity that is outside of the clear bounds of what God has designed sex to be. So we can think of it like this. Here's here's a good working definition for what we are to abstain from, what this sexual immorality is. Sexual immorality is anything that deviates from sex being enjoyed by one man and one woman as they become one flesh in marital covenant for the purpose of procreation. I'm going to say that again for the note takers. Sexual immorality is anything that deviates from sex being enjoyed by one man and one woman as they become one flesh in marital covenant for the purpose of procreation. Have you ever wondered if some act might be sexually immoral? Well, this this kind of solves that problem for you. It's easy. Just ask yourself, is this act an act enjoyed between one man and one woman as they become one flesh in marital covenant for the purpose of procreation? Now, that little thought process, the way I make it sound so easy, it, it might sound glib, but how many sexual sins begin by just sort of twisting those clear boundaries, blurring those lines, 
Sexual sin has a way of sounding very reasonable when it's our temptation. And only after the fallout from it do we realize how foolish it was. Think of the things we might sometimes be tempted to tell ourselves. We're going to get married in the future. So if we have sex now, it's basically the same thing. Or we might tell ourselves that this is the last time we'll give into this temptation. And from here on out, it won't be a problem anymore. Pursue this definition. Keep these boundaries clear in your mind. You see, Paul wants us to know that this definition of sexual immorality, and and by virtue of that, the definition of sex as God's designed it, is not just a cultural preference. It's not a human tradition. Look with me back at verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, when Paul says this, he has all of what he's been talking about in mind. He disregards not man, but God. God's design for human sex is rooted in his nature and his character. And this is really at the heart of all that goes wrong with sin and sex. It's ultimately a rejection of God himself. We can see this very clearly from other places in our Bible. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking briefly at verses 21 through 25. Romans 1, 21 through 25. For although they knew God, and the they here that Paul is speaking of is the the non-Christian world, the world dead in sin, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the the great exchange of God's good truth for idolatry. Verse 24, therefore, that is, as a result, because they did this, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So the general corruption that we see in God's good, glorious design for sex in the world comes fundamentally from mankind exchanging the truth of God for idolatry. When men and women reject God and chase after idols, God removes his restraining grace from our hearts and he lets us have what we want. What flows out of our hearts are these dishonoring passions and sexual desires that we see throughout the world. We see adultery, masturbation, homosexuality, pedophilia, transgenderism, all of these various sexual sins They all may look different on the outside, but they all share the same root. They're all connected in that way. At their most basic level, their rejection of our Creator. Have you ever thought that you might not be able to have a 
a meaningful or productive spiritual conversation with someone that you know, maybe a coworker or a neighbor or a friend, because that person was involved with or enslaved to some sort of sexual sin that you have never even experienced a glimmer of a temptation for. Maybe that person has some sort of gender dysphoria. You don't know what it's like to feel like you're a woman trapped in a man's body. The world would tell you that you can't even begin to talk to that person. But you don't need to know what that's like. You don't need to experience an evil desire or have committed a sin in order to be able to minister to and evangelize someone who has. You can, this is kind of the same way we think about uh, doing ministry to the cults, to the false religions of the world. You don't need to, to go out and study every detail of Joseph Smith's life and memorize the doctrine of the Book of Mormon to be able to share the gospel with your Mormon neighbor. It's the same thing when it comes to sexual sin, which is all downstream of that same idolatrous rejection of God. That means fundamentally all you need to be able to do is share with them the antidote to Romans 1, to share with them the gospel. And brothers and sisters, if you know the gospel and you can communicate that to that person, you have the sharpest scalpel in the world to cut to the heart of their problem. I want to take a step back here and look at these first few verses again. Paul has urged the sexual, uh, urged the Thessalonians to pursue sexual holiness and even to do so more and more. We see that in verse 1. Just as you are doing, that you would do so more and more. But look at the why he says that they should do this. That's in verse 3. For this, and that word for there, if you like to underline in your Bibles, great word to underline. That's, that's the explanation of why. That is the because. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So we should seek to please God more and more through our holiness, our sexual purity, because it's his will that we be sanctified. This word sanctified means to become holy, to be made holy. I wonder how many of us realize that God's will for our lives is so plainly spelled out here in our Bibles. We often get caught up trying to think about very specific instances and what God's will for our lives might be in those circumstances. Should I marry this person? Is it God's will that I take this job? Is it God's will that I might join this church? Now, those are all good things, but how much thought, by comparison, do we give to God's general will that he's revealed for our lives? And we see that right here. It may be God's will for you to get married someday, but you can be certain that it's God's will for you to be sexually holy today. Now, to understand this call to holiness what God is asking us to do and to pursue, what he's doing in us, we need to first understand the holiness of God himself. Holiness is central to who God is. It's his set-apartness. It's his distinction from all that he has created in the perfection of his attributes. You can think of it like a, like a chasm between 
his creation and him. The measure of that void, that distance, that is his holiness. When Isaiah has his vision of the Lord, the seraphim around the prophet are calling out, they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Those are the same words that we sang this morning, if you recognize that. That that trifold use of the word holy, 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 is designed to emphasize God's holiness to the nth degree. So whatever the distance you think of between us and God and his holiness, whatever, whatever the measure of that chasm is in your mind, it's not enough. And amazingly, despite that, God's will for you and I as Christians is to become more like him. That's what it means for his will being for us to become more holy. It's to be more like God. When it comes to our sexual holiness, this means that we are to become morally pure like him. And when we do this, when he works this in us, we reflect his image more to the watching world. His word tells us that someday when our sanctification is complete, we will look like him. We see that in 1 John, where we read, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But, when, but we know that when he appears, that is, the Lord Jesus, we shall be like him. That day feels a long way away at times, doesn't it? We see a clear reminder of just how far we are from that in our text today. That until we either die and go be with the Lord, or he returns, this process isn't complete. We don't look like the Lord. This is why Paul tells them, even while he encourages them and says, you're walking in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. He's telling them they need to do it more and more. This is the sanctification that God wills for our lives. This is that process. And it is a process. It's a struggle. Scripture tells us that we are renewed day by day as time goes by. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, gradually changing us. As our brother Sean prayed this morning, working in our hearts so that we love the things God loves and we come to hate the things God hates. I think this is the reason why Paul references God's Holy Spirit in verse 8. Look there again. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Those who disregard these commands are disregarding the God who's given you the power to obey them. He's calling attention here, Paul is, to the fact that our growth in holiness, though we're entirely responsible for, is a work of God through the Holy Spirit. There's a reason, if you've ever thought about this, that he's called the Holy Spirit. He's making us holy. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote this on holiness. Man's holiness is now his greatest happiness. And in heaven, man's greatest happiness will be his perfect holiness. 
the longer I've been a Christian, the more I've come to see the truth in that. Mostly because some days I am just so tired of my sin. When we sang this morning, uh, look back at the lyrics of the hymn, I Ask the Lord. And this, this song is that experience. Look at the, the fourth, uh, sorry, verse two, the second half of verse two. We ask the Lord for holiness and instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Sin is exhausting. It takes a toll on us spiritually. And the more we grow in the Lord, the more we come to hate it. And so it exhausts us more. Sometimes we might find that we're so weary of our sins, we're just ready to go home to be with the Lord. What we have here is the antidote to that. That is the joy of experiencing holiness in this life. Our holiness in this life, what little bit we may have of it, is our greatest happiness here because it gives us a respite. It gives us a shelter from that weariness. And so, brothers and sisters, the application here is simple. Pursue that. How do we pursue that? Well, Paul gives us an answer here in verse 5. Let's look a little farther. Excuse me, verse 4. Let's start in verse 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Before we unpack this verse, we need to do a little bit of text work. If um, you've noticed, your Bible might have a little asterisk or a little footnote for this verse. It's because there's a, there's a translational question here. Uh, the ESV, which I've been reading out of, translates this verse, as I just read, that each one of you know how to control his own body. But the Greek word here that's translated body is literally just the word vessel or a container, like a a jar that would hold something. So Paul is using the word vessel clearly as a figure of speech. But translators don't all agree on what that figure of speech is pointing to. Also, the Greek word translated control is in Scripture almost always translated to mean something slightly different, and that is to acquire or to gain. And so because of these two little questions about word choice, some versions of, your, some versions of our Bibles, the uh, RSV, for example, will translate this as that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself. Now, that may sound dramatically different, but I want to show you that it's not. So if we take this second option, the take a wife for yourself option, Paul's actually repeating something that he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he writes, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Here Paul is pointing to that relationship and saying one of the ways that we can fight sexual sin in our lives is to pour out our good, natural sexual desires into God's good and glorious design within the bounds of marriage. 
He actually points to this as being a tool for gaining self-control a little later in this same chapter in 1 Corinthians. He says, because of this, sorry, do this so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So whichever one of these translations of this verse that we feel is correct, the underlying, the fundamental principle that Paul is pointing to is that of self-control, that our sexual holiness and our growth in it comes through mastery of the self. To have self-control in the biblical sense really means to be something like a gatekeeper. So the, the gatekeeper of a city was the one who controls the opening and the shutting of those city gates. What comes in or what doesn't come in? A good gatekeeper keeps alert. He looks carefully at who's coming through the gate. And when he sees something that shouldn't be coming through, he has the discipline and the speed and the awareness to shut that gate before anyone's allowed to pass. This is what it looks like to control your urges, to control yourself. In real life, this may look like you feel tempted to click on a link on your computer that you know will take you to explicit images that you shouldn't be looking at. And so you shut your computer before that happens. It may mean you're walking down the street and you see an attractive member of the opposite sex wearing clothes that are skin tight. And you see what's coming and you know you'll be tempted to lust, so you look away. It means that if you're with someone who isn't your husband or your wife and they start making sexual advances at you, you shut it down. This is what practical self-control looks like. And just so you know, this was a very easy list to write. It's a much harder thing to do. We all know that fighting things as simple as what we do with our eyes can be a challenge. Sometimes it feels impossible. But if you want more self-control, Here's what you need to do. The first step to getting more self-control so that you can grow in sexual holiness is you have to recognize its source. Self-control, the Bible tells us, is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It means that self-control is a work of God's grace in our hearts. This is that process of Him making us more like Him. We don't produce greater self-control by flexing our inner moral willpower. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 15 that we can't do anything apart from him. But we have to balance this. We have to talk about how God is doing this great work within our hearts. It's it's ultimately all him and his grace being poured out on us. And yet here we see Paul clearly telling us to do this. We have to balance these things because the Bible somehow balances these things. They're both true. We don't sit back and passively wait for self-control to happen to us. God calls us to act. We don't produce the fruit. God does. But we're the ones who need to bear it. One writer puts it this way. As the Hebrews were promised the land that is in the Old Testament, God promised his people the Holy Land, 
Even though they were promised this land, they had to take it by force, one town at a time. In the same way, we're promised the gift of self-control, and yet we must also take it by force. As we take hold of this gift, we begin again to look less like the world. Look at verse 5 now. Paul is going to make a very stark contrast between God's people and the Gentiles. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So we're to live in a way that shows self-control, be it by taking a spouse or by exercising and demonstrating our control of our urges and our desires in a way that's dramatically different from the way the world lives. The Gentiles, and and the word Gentiles here was a word that its root is in the nations. It means everyone outside of God's people. It's everyone outside of the church. The Gentiles act in the passion of lust. And Paul says that's because they do not know God. So let's, let's walk through this contrast. We, as God's people, have the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and he gives us the power to rule over our desires. The Gentiles have no power to control their desires. And so their desires instead rule over them. We are called to act in holiness and honor. But God has given the Gentiles over to dishonorable passions. While we are being transformed by the renewal of our minds, the Gentiles, in their minds, to borrow from the words of Jude, are like unthinking animals. They're driven by instinct to just do whatever bubbles up from their hearts. And all of it, each one of these things, shows fundamentally that while we have a personal salvific knowledge of our God, the Gentiles reject God. They don't know him. And by the way they live, they can't please him like we can. You see, when you know God, sex becomes both greater and smaller for you. Sex becomes greater when you know God because God's design gives sex a glory and a purpose that goes far beyond anything that you could get from just mere personal physical pleasure. When you know God, it also becomes smaller because as we come to know God more and more and as we grow in holiness, our primary desire, the way our hearts are oriented is toward pleasing him rather than pleasing ourselves. The world will tell you that that's not true. The world will tell you that you can't be fully satisfied in this life unless you are fulfilled sexually. Our world will even tell you that if you're not fulfilling the desires of your heart sexually, you're not even a person. You're not even yourself. This is where we get all that bizarre modern language that says that if you tell me I can't do this with my body, you are literally killing me. You're denying my existence. 
That's where this comes from. Because when your desire is your absolute highest and ultimate goal, that physical pleasure is, is what you live for, yeah, in a sense, it is. But as a Christian, you don't ever even have to participate in a single sexual act ever to be fully satisfied in this life. You may never marry. If you're single here today, you may never get married. Some of you may spend the rest of your lives single. Some in the church spend the rest of their lives single because they're constantly battling the sinful desires of same-sex attraction, trying to live faithfully despite that burden. You may be married or get married, and the person you're married to may become so physically ill or, or wounded and mauled by a physical injury to the point that sexual intercourse is, is no longer an option for you in your marriage. Again, that wisdom of the world that says your highest desire and goal in life is the pursuit of sexual pleasure, that wisdom would tell you that if you're in that group that I just described, you might as well be dead. But if you're in Christ, it's the exact opposite. Our souls are built to yearn for something greater and deeper than any of the pleasures this world has to offer. And even if you're married and you have a, 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 the blessing of a fruitful, glorious sexual relationship with your wife or husband, sex cannot be your highest and ultimate good because that can only be the role of God in loving and pleasing and glorifying him. Now I want to turn next to verse 6. Let's look at verse 6. Paul gives us another instruction here in how we are to pursue sexual holiness and please the Lord. He tells us to watch out that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now when Paul here says in this matter, again, He's pointing back to all that we have covered so far. This is generally referring to sexual immorality. And why does he say this? Well, read a little farther. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. This is how we can know with certainty that our sexual sin is displeasing to God. Because he's going to bring his vengeance upon it. The Lord is standing by right now. He's, he's poised, ready to pour his vengeance out and his justice out on sinners. And this day could be tomorrow. This day could be in a thousand years. But when it happens, God will fully and finally avenge all of the sexual sins that have ever harmed any of his people in this life. That day will be a great day of vindication for you if you've been harmed by sexual sin. And if you're not in Christ, that will be a great day of terror. If you don't know Christ, don't let the fact that you've managed to hide your sins from man in this life fool you into thinking that you've hidden them from God. 
that day is coming. God is the avenger. He will pour out his vengeance against sin. And while these eternal consequences of sin may look distant, they may feel far off, they're not. And God is showing us that in this life. He shows us that primarily through the real consequences that we experience in this life from our sexual sins. We see glimmers and hints of that judgment that is to come in the judgment that we feel when our sins cause us and others to suffer in this life. Paul's instructions here that that are very particular to avoid transgressions and wrongs against our brothers. This is a reminder that our sexual sins, they're never what we might call victimless crimes. To some degree or another, they always leave us and harm the people around us. I'm sure you've seen this. You've seen sin damage and strain relationships even before it's known to the people involved in those relationships. At its worst, you've probably seen it tear families apart. You've seen it trample on the dignity of the innocent. You see, these sins may begin alone in a dark room with a screen. Or they may begin in a a hotel room on a business trip thousands of miles away. But they have a way of finding themselves pulled into the light. And that's painful. But one thing to consider here is that pain of exposing sin. It's God allowing that sin to be exposed. And in many ways, it's a mercy. It's a mercy because it's a warning of that future judgment. It's a a wake-up call. Has your sexual sin ever cost you something? I know people to whom it's cost them their job. I know it's it's cost them relationships. Maybe it's, it's harmed your husband or your wife. At the very least, it's embarrassed you. All of these things, brothers and sisters, are warnings to, to get your attention back to this, back to pursuing holiness, pursuing God. The pain from these things is terrible. But we can think of it a lot like the way our bodies might respond to eating rotten food. When we eat rotten food, we we cramp, our stomachs twist in knots, and we expel our food in the worst possible ways. But that pain is your body trying to protect you. It's a warning to tell you, hey, stop eating whatever this is. You're not designed for this food. It's not good for you. In the same way, your loss and your pain and your embarrassment at your sexual sin, that's God warning you, you're not designed for that. It's not good for you. And it's leading you to destruction. Look at the way this plays out in the world. Again, back to the Gentiles who live in the the lusts of their passions. What do we see? The toll of unchecked sexual immorality in the world around us is everywhere. Young women are more promiscuous than ever. They, they brag on TikTok about all the men who they've become one flesh with. And yet they take more antidepressants at higher rates than ever before. Look at the gender confusion in, in people who are 
transgendered, who think they're different than the way God made them, and they're seeking out to change their bodies through surgery and drugs. That group has a higher attempted suicide rate than the Jews in Auschwitz. One out of every three children born into our world today in the the United States will be raised by a single mother. And that fact alone puts those children at dramatically higher chances of ending up on drugs and in jail and producing more single mothers themselves. So I have to ask you, if if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, do you think that's just a coincidence? Do you think that, that these things are something other than a warning sign? this is just nature, that this is how things are meant to be. These are like the the blaring alarms and flashing red lights in the cockpit of a plane headed to the ocean. We have to take note of this. Scripture tells us that the fruit of sin is death. And these, the, the, the societal rot we see around us is that death. So we've already seen this morning, the Lord will right every wrong. And so if you're not a Christian, know that you will be the subject of that vengeance. You will be punished for eternity for every careless thing you've done with your body. But I also want you to know that you can please God. You can please God because God was pleased to crush his son on a cross. And on that cross, Jesus willingly took on the punishment for sins like those we're talking about, for the sins of sinners like you and I. And if we turn to him and we trust in him, his perfect holiness becomes ours. If you've never heard this before, Perhaps you've you've heard the gospel, but it it never meant anything to you before, and you're curious now what that might look like to follow Jesus. Please come and talk to me, or, or honestly, any member of this church after leaving here this morning. We'd love to talk to you more about what that means. Finally, if you are a Christian here today, as, as I know most of you are, I know some of you have struggled mightily with sexual sins. Regularly we hear testimonies to the glory and goodness of God's mercy and grace in the lives of members of this church who have overcome sins that at one point they thought were insurmountable. Yet we also still struggle. Many of us are struggling right now with sexual sin. So I want to leave you with with just this. The Thessalonians weren't perfect in their holiness. They without a doubt, put aside the serious, public, flagrant sexual sins of the Roman world and become part of this young church. But like all of us, they were still growing in grace. That means they stumbled. And yet God looked at them and was pleased. Think about what this means. That, that, That means if God can look at them and be pleased, God can look at you and be pleased as you struggle with your sin. When you sin, you you do grieve him. He does disapprove of your sin. 
But he doesn't look on you with contempt. And all it takes is turning to him each day and each morning for new mercies. Look, look back at the songs that we sung this morning. How easily we can connect these. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? God's patience and his mercy toward us is stronger than darkness and new every morn. And then look now at the song that we're about to sing. Trust and obey. If you find yourself in that lull, grieving God with your sin, know that he's pleased when you turn back to him and you trust and obey. Look at the third set of verses there. No, not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile, his smile quickly drives it away. God looks down on you in your growth and holiness, and he is pleased. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mighty work that you are working in the hearts of your people. We thank you for our holiness and we ask, Lord, for more of it. We pray you would use your word this morning to strengthen our resolve, to build us up and equip us to continue to grow into the image of your son, Jesus. And we pray this all in his glorious name. Amen.